Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, folks? My name is Xavier Katana. You are listening to The Human Experience. In this episode, we brought on Mr. Robert Wagoner. He is considered one of the worldwide authorities on lucid dreaming. He has appeared on CNN, CBS, ABC, and a wide range of other media outlets. This episode covers some of the main points of the lucid dream experience, but I highly recommend you pick up a copy of Robert's book simply titled Lucid Dreaming. Robert was actually requested by many of you guys, so we brought him on. Very happy with the outcome of this episode. It's a very fun, lighthearted episode that I hope you guys truly enjoy. Guys, we do this for our passion and we because, because we love helping you. Servers and bandwidth costs are seriously getting outrageous. I'm covering all of this out of my own pocket myself. So for right now, we rely on your support. Get to our main page, thehumanxp.com slash donate. Buy us lunch, dinner, coffee, whatever amount you're comfortable with, the littlest amount can and will help. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all at The Human XP. Without much further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Robert Wagoner, where we discuss his book, Lucid Dreams. Enjoy. human experience is accessing the gateway to the inner self with my guest, Mr. Robert Wagoner. Robert, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Hey, thanks for having me. Robert, you're, we're talking about your book today, Lucid Dreaming. Let's, let's start at the beginning for you. I mean, how did you get to the point where you decided to write this book? You know, um, I taught myself how to lucid dream or become consciously aware of dreaming while in the dream state. Uh, back in 1975 when I was a junior in high school. And so um, after about 30 years of lucid dreaming, I thought there really wasn't a good book on the lucid dreaming experience and some of the incredible things that a person could do when they become consciously aware within the dream. And so um, around uh, 2005 or so, I, I made my first attempt at writing a book and got about 50 pages and stopped there. But, but then in 2007, uh, I went ahead and, and wrote this first book, Lucid Dreaming, Gateway to the Inner Self. And that's been followed up by a second book, uh, Lucid Dreaming, Plain and Simple, which is all about the tips and techniques. But it was just out of my desire to kind of share with people the extraordinary depth of lucid dreaming. Okay. So, I mean, most people, I would say most people don't even remember their dreams at all, right? 
Exactly. And so, and, and I find that there's this sort of period for me anyway, there's this sort of window where I, when I'm regaining consciousness, where dreams kind of absorb back in and I have that chance. And if I miss that chance, I just, I lose all track or memory of, of whatever I, whatever I was dreaming. You know, that's, that's how many people experience it. If they, if they don't make some notes in the middle of the night or they don't make some dream notes immediately upon waking uh, within two or three or four minutes, the memory of the dream is totally gone. And so to get into lucid dreaming or to dream recall, you just really have to focus upon waking up, what was I just dreaming? And write down some notes and make that the most important thing that you do uh, when you wake up every morning. Okay, so I mean, lucid dreaming was coined by uh, Frederick Van Eden? Th- that's right. The, that's what most people would say. Historically, there's this gentleman in the Netherlands. Uh, he was kind of a, a scientist. He also coined the term psychotherapist. Oh, okay. uh, but, but Frederick Van Eden, uh, he, he was a scientist, but also a little bit of a mystic. And, and back around the turn of the century at 1900, uh, he began to realize he was having lucid dreams, and he came up with this term, I think, when he gave a presentation to the Society for Psychical Research in London in like 1913 or something. But yeah, a lucid dream is any dream in which you realize within the dream that you're dreaming. And so oftentimes you'll have that moment when you say in the dream, oh, this is a dream. I mean, that's the only explanation for how you can see a cow flying, you know, across the sky right. or something like that. And so so it's a, it's a wonderful moment because at that moment, everything shifts. You realize that you're surrounded by dream stuff and dream figures and, and a dream setting, and, and it just totally changes the entire dream experience. It fascinates me that that we sleep. I mean, that we, that all of humans need sleep. I mean, most species on the planet sleep at, at some point or another. I mean, I think it was Terrence McKenna who said something quite profound that because of the, the way that the earth is moving, there's, there's always a section of the, the human population that is asleep and a section that is kind of awake. I mean, just a kind of side note there, but I mean, within within lucid dreaming and and dreaming itself. How, I mean, how did you get to a point where you were you were so proficient at this? Because it seems like such a hard thing to do to to realize you're dreaming, first to to even remember your dreams, but then to to actually realize you're dreaming and then take control of of the dream. Yeah, you, you know what? Just to carry on with that line of thinking for a second. If you sit down and think that probably every night we spend about two, two and a half hours in the dream state, every one of us, two and two and a half hours in the dream state, I mean, by the time you're 11 years old, you will have spent one entire year's worth of time in dreaming, in this state of dreaming. And it's incredible that, you know, scientifically we know a little bit about it, but but there's a lot that hasn't been figured out. And, and that's one of the beautiful aspects about lucid dreaming. When you're consciously aware within the dream state, you have the ability to explore, to experiment, and to do all that kind of thing, to kind of get a new understanding of dreaming. But, but for me, uh, how I became proficient was that, uh, so back in 19, 
75. I was reading this book by Carlos Castaneda called Journey to Ixland. And in this book, his shamanic teacher, Don Juan, suggests to him that he find his hands in the dream state and become consciously aware. And, And that was a totally radically new idea for me. And I wondered if that could actually happen, but there wasn't a technique. And so, because I knew a little bit about self-suggestion and hypnosis, uh, this is what I did as a young guy. Each night before I'd go to sleep, I'd just look at my hands while telling myself over and over in my head, tonight in my dreams, I'll see my hands and realize I'm dreaming. Tonight in my dreams, I'll see my hands and realize I'm dreaming. And I would say that for about five minutes until I became naturally sleepy and and went to bed. And I did this for three nights, and then on the third night, I was walking through my high school hallway, and suddenly, just like they were spring-loaded, my hands popped right in front of my face, and I thought, oh, my hands, this is Mm. a dream. Mm. And so that was my first consciously intended or induced lucid dream experience. And so I continued with that, and uh, because it was so much fun, the, it's so powerful and almost transcendent when you have this kind of peak experience of realizing within a dream that you're dreaming. And so I seem to have a kind of a natural facility for it, and uh, I just continued going deeper and deeper into lucid dreaming. But what really made me the happiest was when in 1980-81 when finally the scientific evidence for it came out because up until that time I would tell my friends about it and they told me oh you can't become conscious in the unconscious of dreaming no one can do that and I I told them you know it's easy Uh, here's here's how you do it and some of my friends uh, even did it back then but it wasn't until 81 the evidence came out interesting okay so so you you became proficient just by kind of programming psychologically that you were going to see your hands and then through that trigger you 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 realized you were in a dream and then you started controlling it right right so so it's kind of like ivan pavlov the russian physiologist uh, he would ring a bell right every time he presented food to dogs and after he did this 10 or 20 times, he could ring a bell and suddenly the dogs would salivate. So, so in psychology, that's what you call a conditioned response. And so basically, I conditioned myself that whenever I saw my hands, the first idea that would come to my head is, this is a dream. And so, so for example, um, I might in a dream be climbing up a ladder and see my hands and think, well, wait a second. Oh, this is a dream. I remember uh, talking to one person who had read my book and he said that he was very successful with this technique. And, but one time his hands popped in front of his face and he didn't get it. And then all of a sudden the hands started slapping him in the face until he realized, <laughs> oh, th- th- this is a dream. And, and so, so you realize, you know, that you can just use simple self-suggestion and kind of this behavioral conditioning to, to achieve it. But, but that's how I did it uh, back in 1975 uh, before the scientific evidence emerged. So, I mean, we're, we're diving into the psyche here. I mean, a lot of this, because I, I feel like, I mean, I, I have been meditating and I've been solidly meditating for the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And uh, at the beginning stages of that, I think I was, I was purposely attempting to go out of body and I, I was, I was intrigued by the out of body state. I mean, how would you compare, um, lucid dreaming to out of body experiences? 
Right, right. So normally when I give workshops, I tell people that a, a lucid dream in an out-of-body is basically like a house cat and a mountain lion. They share some similarities, but, but they're two different animals. And, and so, again, a lucid dream, the definition is realizing within a dream that you're dreaming. So you see something impossible or something happens and you think, wait a second, oh, this is a dream. But, but think about out-of-body experiences, those kind of reports. Uh, someone has a car accident and they're thrown out the windshield and they're laying in the, in the middle of the highway and suddenly they're seeing everything from, from 20 feet above the accident site. I mean, that's an out-of-body experience. That's an experience that didn't begin with realizing you're in a dream. Uh, so, so by definition, you know, these are definitely two different experiences. But where it gets complicated is this. Um, Around the same time I taught myself how to lucid dream, I would have these other experiences, which I later came to realize were out of bodies. But basically what would happen, I'd be lying in bed, uh, getting ready to fall asleep, and then I'd start to hear this kind of humming, buzzing noise, and you know, it sounded like a thousand bumblebees around my head or someone playing a digger a or something like that. And, and I'd feel this strange energy and then I'd realize, well, wait a second, I'm, I'm viewing my bedroom or what appears to be my bedroom from, you know, five or six feet above the bed. Yeah, how did I do this? Mm-hmm. And, and so, so I, I started having these kind of strange experiences like this. And uh, one day I just happened to ask one of my older brothers if he'd ever had an experience like that. And, and he told me, oh, you're, you're having out-of-body experiences. And uh, there's this new book by Robert Monroe you can mm, read yeah. about and, and, and see what this is all about. But you begin to realize that phenomenologically they're different. So, so, so that kind of experience, you know, there's buzzing, there's energy. Sometimes you roll out. Sometimes you shoot out. Sometimes you see these wispy kind of uh, uh, silver-colored arms of light or whatever, you know, your, your kind of astral arms, if you want to think of it that way. And, and you realize that that's a totally different experience than lucid dreaming. The beautiful thing about lucid dreaming, though, is, is that it is simply almost always joyful fun. Yeah. Um, well, when you have out-of-body experiences, especially when it begins to happen, if you're a teenager, sometimes these can, these can be utterly frightful events. There's all this energy and humming, and, and you don't know what what's going on. I mean, no one's prepared you for it. And, and so, so the sad thing, though, is now these two experiences are being intermixed. And there's some people like Stephen LeBurge who say that, that out-of-bodies are actually probably a variant lucid, a type of lucid dream. Right. But, 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 but again, if you get shot out of your windshield on, windshield on the highway and you're laying there and seeing everything from 30 feet above you, your physical body, you know, that, that, that's obviously not realizing within a dream that you're dreaming. So, so there are two definitely different experiences and, and there's a lot of phenomenological differences too. Yeah, it seems like they're completely different experiences. Um, Robert Monroe hugely recommend any of his material. He was a big hero of mine. Um, so let's, I mean, let's talk about some tools that, I mean, because we can use this state as a form of learning, right? Exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a wonderful way first to kind of realize that dreaming itself is not random, 
like some scientists say it is, that actually in a lucid dream you begin to realize that there's certain principles and rules. And, and so just to give your listeners a kind of a rough idea, here would be some rules that you learn very quickly in lucid dreaming. Uh, one rule is don't get too excited because if you get too excited, normally what happens, and I mean really excited, if you get too excited, then normally you pop out of the lucid dream. And so around the world, universally it seems, uh, lucid dreamers report that if they get too excited, you know, upon becoming lucid, they'll immediately pop out of the lucid dream. So, so that's kind of one of the basic rules. Another rule was one that Castaneda brought up in that book, Journey to Ixlan. His shamanic teacher told him, don't stare at things when you become consciously aware in a lucid dream. And, uh, and I remember the, in my very first intended lucid dream, I did that. I, I stepped outside of the high school and I was looking at the bricks on the administration building and I began to notice the detail. And then it was like the dream started shaking, like this lucid <laughs> dream started shaking. And, and I realized, oh, it's going to collapse. And I remember that Don Juan told Carlos to look back at his hands to renew the power of dreaming if that ever occurred. And, and, and so I did that and managed to prolong the lucid dream. But, but that's just another aspect of it. Um, in regular dreams, we have rapid eye movement. You know, our eyes are moving all over the place. But in lucid dreams, your eyes should still continue to move a little bit. If you stare fixedly at something, there's something about that that within four or five seconds will make the lucid dream want to collapse. So interesting. I, I feel like eventually technology will get to a point where we will be able to induce this state using uh, just gear like that we hook up to our brains. I mean, I, I know that they have different tools like like glasses that you can wear that kind of flash a red light to end. And that way it kind of reminds you that you're dreaming. You can wear those. Um, I mean, so you mentioned around the world, I mean, do you notice that, um, that people, different people have different proclivities to, to lucid dreaming around the world? Well, they've done some, uh, research surveys of, of college students and asked them, have you ever become consciously aware of dreaming while in the dream state? And, uh, when they surveyed, uh, students in the U S about 72% said that yes they'd had that experience at least once and about 25 percent say they have that experience at least once a month and and the results were roughly the same uh, in the netherlands and germany and, and western europe um, in japan though uh, it the response was 42 percent so only 42 percent of the japanese students said they'd had that experience and so it makes you wonder if the interpretation or the way it was translated uh, didn't get across uh, very thoughtfully so that students understood. But but altogether, when it, you look at the total population, a little over half the population is is having had or has had the lucid dream experience. Now, there are some people, though, who lucid dream virtually every night. And, uh, and, and at first, I began to explore this a little bit because um, I – co-edit a magazine called the lucid dreaming experience and, and and i wanted to find out you know what what's behind this becoming lucid every night and and my theory was that these people had had childhood nightmares 
And so they taught themselves how to differentiate waking from dreaming. Because if you're going to have a childhood nightmare every night, uh, you want to be ready and vigilant and know when you're in the dream state so you're prepared for the witches or the monsters or the zombies or whatever. And and so when I began to uh, talk to people who said they had lucid dreams every night, the majority, that was their situation. They had childhood nightmares that were really severe. And to kind of deal with that, they taught themselves how to become lucidly aware. Because when you realize it's a dream, then you can fly away from the witches or you can make some accommodation. But then I began to meet people who that wasn't their case. And one woman told me that she had a neurotic habit. And uh, I asked her what that was. And she said she had a neurotic habit of... 20 or 30 times throughout the day asking herself, what was I just doing? What was I just doing? And so if she is folding the clothes in the laundry room, you know, what was I just doing? Oh, yeah, I was making tea for myself. And so she would do that in her dreams. She would ask herself, what was I just doing? And then she would remember that she was putting on her pajamas. And then she realized, oh, this must be, must be a dream. And so, so uh, I began to see that people could develop a lucid mindset. So, so this is kind of a state of examining their perceived environment very closely or have some recurring habit like examining what you were just doing, some, something that made you more mindful about your space. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you could develop a lucid mindset. But, but you're right, uh, around the world, Basically, half the people report lucid dreaming, and and about 25% of the people seem to have kind of a natural talent to lucid dream. Interesting. So it seems that a human is a human, and we all basically can't have the the ability to lucid dream. I I really think so. And, And a lot of it, like we began talking about, is dreaming as a basic experience is devalued in society. People don't pay attention to their dreams anymore. But you can think back 2,000 years before Netflix and before TV and before all that. I mean, dreams probably were the most exciting things that were happening in people's lives if they were living in some, you know, small village along the Nile. I mean, you know, in, in your dreams, you could interact with the deceased, you can fly, you can do all sorts of amazing things and have all kinds of interesting experiences. So, but in this current culture, dreaming is really devalued. People don't talk about it or they just think about it in kind of psychologically therapeutic terms and and, that, and that, that's all the more they think about it. I mean, I would say that television probably sucks the ability to lucid dream out of you. I mean, <laughs> all the flashing images, uh, your brain just can't handle it. Um, so, so really, uh, there's a chapter in your book called uh, The Varieties of Dream Figures. I find this fascinating. And you say that these can be anywhere from symbols to different archetypes. I mean, how... so. I mean, what what generates this? Like, is it just the psyche that's kind of generating this dream figure that comes to you, or how does that work? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So when you become consciously aware in a dream, uh, I mean, we're just kind of, uh, as social beings, we're kind of socialized to interact with other figures in the dream. And, and what's interesting is that oftentimes lucid dreamers would go up to a dream figure and they would say, hey, do you know this is a dream? And and 
almost, again, universally, the dream figures would frown at them or, or just look upset. And, and there's been a number of examples of lucid dreamers going up to a dream figure saying, hey, do you know, I, do you know that I'm dreaming you? And then the dream figure responding, how do you know I'm not dreaming you? Wow. And, and then the lucid dreamer would say, well, look, I can fly. And then the dream figure would say, well, look, I can fly too. And they would keep trying to one-up each other to, to see who had the most abilities there in the dream state. But, but what it shows you is this. Dream figures vary. Uh, sometimes you'll ask a dream figure a question and you'll get gobbledygook for an answer. Or sometimes it'll just turn away. But other times you'll interact with dream figures who seem very aware and conscious and alert. And sometimes they'll give you incredible explanations. Like, for example, uh, um, I remember one of my first experiments as an early lucid dreamer uh, back in the early 80s was uh, asking a dream figure that happened to be a friend of mine to explain a dream symbol to me. And so, within the lucid dream, I picked up a dream symbol and I said, hey, Andrea, what does this represent? So, I was holding a jewel, a gem in my hand, and she says, hope and consciousness. And I woke up thinking, wow, a dream figure analyzed a symbol within a lucid dream and, and, and did a pretty good job of it. But, but what happens then, as a lucid dreamer, as you go deeper into this, you think, well, wait a second, is it just telling me what I already know, or is it just giving me an acceptable answer, you know, something that's subconsciously in the back of my mind? Right. And, and, and so, so, to play around with that, if you want to, you can, you can take this much deeper. Uh, for example, um, various people on becoming lucidly aware, um, uh, oftentimes people become lucidly aware when they see a deceased relative. Because they say, wait a second, Uncle Uncle John, he's been dead for 10 years. Oh, this must be a dream. And then they become lucidly aware. And I remember one time um, in one of my workshops, a woman reported that uh, her uncle appeared in a dream. She became lucidly aware. And then he came up to her and said, if you want to understand the family secret, because this woman reported there was a family secret in her family, he goes, to understand the family secret, you have to go to the county courthouse, go up to this particular room on the second floor, and then ask for this specific file. And he gave her the number for the file uh, from the clerk. And, and so the woman, you know, she's a good lucid dreamer. She paid attention to, you know, the exact instructions. She woke up and wrote it down. A few days later, she went to the county courthouse, and she asked for that specific file in that specific room. And then it came to her this file that was of the family battle about the sale of some land, um, you know, 10 years before she was born. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so when that happens, that, that kind of takes it to a different level because yeah. now a dream figure has given you information outside of your knowing. Right. And, and, and so, so that, that's why I try to get across this idea of dream figures varying. Um, and normally you can see it in their eyes, uh, just like if you're talking to a human. Uh, if if they don't 
seem to be very alert or if they're not looking you in the eye or whatever, I, I would just ignore them uh, altogether. But some dream figures seem very conscious and alive. And in fact, I've had a number of lucid dreams where it's obvious that the dream figure was trying to get me to be lucidly aware because when I become lucidly aware, suddenly it congratulates me on becoming lucidly aware. And and then then I'll realize, oh, this same dream figure tried to get me to become lucidly aware the night before, and and I failed. And uh, so so you begin to see that there truly is varieties of dream figures. All dream figures are not created equal. It's very, very intriguing because we're we're bouncing into the sort of esoteric and the metaphysical and like precognition, determining kind of things and, and finding information that we wouldn't otherwise have. I find it I find it interesting that um, that the only real difference that we have the only the only difference that that we have between knowing that we're dreaming or asleep is that. Every night I, I lay down to go to sleep, I close my eyes, and, and that process of waking up. But if, if that process was erased, I mean, how would I know the difference between this being the, the quote, real world and that being the dream world? Exactly. It, one thing that I would say about lucid dreaming is if you're good at lucid dreaming, you're going to question many basic assumptions uh, that, that you've just collected over the course of your life. You know, what constitutes reality? Is it just a matter of consensus? You know, what what is the minimal definition of reality? What, what would that be? Because when you become consciously aware in a lucid dream and you realize that it's a principled environment, it has certain rules, you begin to think that, oh, I'm learning here in my subconscious or unconscious level of my mind. And then when you take it even further and begin to interact with these dream figures who seem more aware than you do or have information outside of your knowing, then it really is like an alternate reality. Uh, but it's an alternate reality that occurs in the lucid dream space. Hmm. Yeah, it's int- fascinating, really intriguing. Have you seen uh, a movie called Waking Life? Yes, I have. I, you know, I think that's uh, one of the better movies that have to do with, with lucid dreaming uh, because it brings up so many philosophical questions and, and, and also has that kind of dreamy uh, spirit to it uh, in the way the figures change throughout the, uh, throughout the movie. Yeah, that's Richard Linklater, the director of that phenomenal movie. Highly recommend it. Um, I mean, let's let's move into some of your own personal experiences with lucid dreaming. And what would what would be one of your top lucid dreams? Wow, you know what happened to me. So I taught myself in 1975 how to lucid dream, and I continued on with the practice and all. But it, but one of the first things that happened to me was 1985. I was part of a three year lucid dreaming group, exploration group, uh, founded by a woman, uh, Linda Lane Maguillon. And um, each month we had a goal to achieve, and, and one month the goal was become lucidly aware and find out what the dream figures in your lucid dream represent. And so I thought, um, that's pretty easy, I've done that before. But what happened, it was really interesting, uh, I think it was March of 85, I was on a business trip out to Chicago, 
Uh, I remember I had to submit my uh, lucid dream for that month. And so that night I became lucidly aware and followed a woman into an office. And so now I'm inside this office. I know it's a lucid dream. Uh, there's a receptionist, two women sitting there, and, and a man in a three-piece suit, an older man with kind of a gold chain in his pocket and, and all that. So, so in my very uh, nice Midwestern way, I, I just walked up to him and I said, excuse me, what do you represent? And, and the most incredible thing happened at that moment. Instead of the dream figure replying, all of a sudden, a voice boomed out a partial response from high above him. This voice just boomed out this response. And the response didn't make complete sense. And, and so I, I looked up into the sky and, and just asked, you know, like, now, now what? And then it boomed out a full response that, that this, this gentleman represented the acquired characteristics of the happy giver. And, and so I thought, okay, I've, I've done the assignment. I've figured out what this guy represents. And so I'm going to wake up and write this down before I forget. And so I woke up and wrote it down. And, and as I was writing it down, I remembered the day before I'd been in Chicago and met a woman who was the head of a nonprofit. And she told me, oh, the only reason people give to my organization is to get their name in the annual report. And I thought, boy, she is such an unhappy receiver. And as I walked away from her, I thought in my head, oh, the Lord loves a happy giver but because she was such an unhappy receiver. And so I realized this was a little bit of day residue. But, but the important element of this was after that, I began to wonder, because this voice had boomed out the response and not the dream figure, mm-hmm. was there an awareness behind the dream? So... So could you, in a lucid dream, stop relating to the dream figures and the dream environment and just shout out questions to your subconscious mind or this non-visible awareness behind the dream? And, and so starting in 1985, I began to do that. I would become consciously aware and I would shout out questions like, hey, dream, show me something important for me to see. And then the incredible thing is the entire lucid dream would change and I'd be looking at something incredible. And so suddenly I felt like I found the most creative aspect of the lucid dream. You know, in, in, in political shows, sometimes they'll say, follow the money or, 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 you know, they'll have kind of a basic premise, you know, to if you want to understand the truth of something, follow the money. But in lucid dreaming and in the subconscious or unconscious mind, if you, if you want to understand something, I, I say follow the creativity. Mm-hmm. If you follow the creativity and find the most creative thing, you know, then, then you're really on to something. And, and it was interesting. Um, uh, that year, 1985, uh, Stephen LaBerge's first book on lucid dreaming came out. And he did something very similar, but not exactly the same. In that first book of his, he suggests that lucid dreamers become aware and then announce that they surrender to the highest and see what happens. And so you become lucidly aware, you ignore the dream figures, and you announce, now I surrender to the highest. And normally, he said some of his most profound lucid dreams occurred when he surrendered. But, but when I read that, I thought, okay, who are you surrendering to? And it's interesting in that book, he, he just refused to say, he said, oh, it's not important to think about what or who we're, we're, 
worth surrendering to. But, th- but that's why I called my first book Lucid Dreaming Gateway to the Inner Self. Um, as you begin to interact with this awareness behind the dream, it, it seems to have the qualities and characteristics of what a person would call an inner self and what, what even uh, Carl Jung kind of gave as a characteristics of a second psychic system within our unconscious mind. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Quite intriguing. Um, you know, I really, I want, really want to bring up the the aspect of drugs and and dreaming. I mean, it it seems like uh, just DMT. DMT is produced naturally in the dra- in the brain. So, I mean, if DMT is producing these dream states, then could could we say that either ingesting DMT, taking DMT, ayahuasca, are, are those forms, I mean, could we relate this to lucid dreaming? Well, it's interesting. Um, I don't have any firsthand experience with DMT or ayahuasca. I, I have read ayahuasca experiences, though, in, in anthropological reports and, and firsthand personal anecdotal reports. And, and they do seem very similar to a lucid dream because the person is consciously aware within the experience. They, they know they're having the experience. But, but the one thing about it in the ayahuasca experience you can tell that it's kind of being chemically mediated mm-hmm. be, because the person is kind of following the, the flow of chemicals. And then once the chemicals, you know, finally degrade within them, you know, then they pop out on the other side. I, I mean, but, but it, during the experience, they, they seem very lucid. Uh, sometimes they have conversations with uh, the figures that they meet. Um, also, it's interesting that in some of these ayahuasca experiences, uh, people report the same thing, you know, of, of serpents or this, that, and the other uh, nature aspects that, that come to meet them or talk to them and all. Now, when it comes to DMT, I've had some people kind of tell me about their experiences and all. They seem a little bit more like what I would call um, what a experienced lucid dreamer might have. Um, as you go deeper and deeper into lucid dreaming, sometimes you have some very abstract experiences. For, for example, instead of meeting a dream figure, you meet a ball of light. Mm-hmm. Or you meet a geometric form of light that communicates something to you. And, and, and so that, that's, you know especially for someone like myself, when you're not expecting to uh, meet a geometric form of light, uh, it, it's kind of a, a wild thing. You're consciously aware, you interact with it. But, uh, but sometimes when you hear about the DMT experiences, um, so sometimes it makes you feel like they've gotten to that level. But, but what, what I do want to say, though, about lucid dreaming is lucid dreaming is kind of a natural progression through oneself. You know, through your belief system, uh, through your fears, because you realize that your fears kind of inhibit your exploration within the lucid dream state. So until you resolve those fears, you can't go any deeper. But but in some of these in some of these um, chemically induced states, um, a lot of times the people are just you know the chemicals are pushing them into some really heavy duty stuff. And and how much they're really learning from the experience or how much they're really growing from the experience is a little bit hard to tell. But in lucid dreaming, where it's kind of a natural progression, you realize that 
you know, you naturally have to conquer your fears. You naturally have to work through limiting beliefs in order to grow this experience and go deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, I definitely get what you're saying. Uh, a friend of mine made an interesting analogy. He said that um, that using drugs to reach this type of state is kind of like being a tourist or getting getting a ticket to an amusement park and and kind of getting on the ride and you take the ride but when it's over your memory of it is is not the same and 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 you're just you're simply a tourist in these in these states whereas when you're when you're actually meditating and doing the work to reach the state because I, I do believe that reaching a state of of lucid dreaming and dreaming consciously, it does it does take this sort of mental exercise. It does take this this mental work. So, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on that? It's exactly it's exactly the case. Uh, in lucid dreaming, you realize that it's not really so. It's not really about control. Because how can you say you control the lucid dream when you ask a dream figure, oh, do you know I'm dreaming you? And then it gives you an unexpected response like, how do you know I'm not dreaming you? So, so after a while, you realize a lucid dream isn't about control. Sure, the lucid dreamer influences things. But fundamentally, what lucid dreaming is about is aware relating. You begin to relate to the contents of your subconscious or unconscious mind with greater awareness. This aware relating begins to show you limiting beliefs you have, fears that you have, issues about focus, fixations that you might have. And as you work through them, you begin to grow and grow and grow. And you you realize you're growing because you go more deeply into lucid dreaming. I, I remember I, I, I was going so deeply into lucid dreaming that at one point um, um, I began to see in the sky above me a banner flying saying, trust, nothing to fear. And sometimes I'd hear a voice behind me say, trust, nothing to fear. Because as you go deeper and deeper and deeper, and this is something that Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, who wrote the Tibetan yogas of dream and sleep said, he he said, really, the the dream yoga path, the, the lucid dreaming path is of increasing fearlessness. You know, you, you, you face your fears and you resolve them, you work through them. But, um, but so, so, so lucid dreaming is a very natural process. It's one of aware relating. It's one where you begin to see yourself and just not this ego waking self, but this larger awareness that you're part and parcel of. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, you know, when we get into the science of dreaming and rapid eye movement, and we're talking about different neurotransmitters that are, that are happening inside the brain. I mean, do you think that perhaps in the future that there could be a sort of pill that, I mean, I know that when I take melatonin, I tend to have deeper and more clear and even sometimes lucid dreams. And do you think that there it's, I mean, do you think it's possible that we could invent something that that would allow us to lucid dream? Right, right. No, I definitely think you know there's there's basically three gateways into lucid dreaming. Uh, first is this kind of mental gateway of of learning practices of being more aware of suggesting before you sleep that you'll be aware in the dream state and become lucid. But but there's also this biochemical uh, path, and um, 
you know, for some people, uh, you know, melatonin might help. Uh, some people take uh, um, uh, one of the B vitamins that helps to enhance their memory uh, right before they go to sleep. But but there has been some work uh, by, by Stephen LaBerge um, on a specific uh, um, active ingredient in galantamine, which is a drug used for people with Alzheimer's to make them more aware and alert in waking physical reality. But, but he, he realized that this galantamine uh, also seemed to help people become lucidly aware. Uh, now, I do want to say that uh, th- this is a herb that, that in the U.S. is legal, that, that people can purchase. But it is a, it's a really a heavy-duty substance. And so I don't want people to take it just thinking that it's like you know, B6 or something like that. It's, it's, it's really a heavy-duty thing. And it's also something that you take after you've been asleep for five hours or so. You don't take it when you fall asleep. You take it after you wake up after about five hours, and then you take it. But for some people, it appears to help them become lucidly aware. Now, now one thing I do want to say, though, is I had a good friend, uh, Ed Kellogg, who has a PhD in biochemistry from Duke. And, and so he decided you know, to investigate whether the placebo aspect plays a role here. And so what he did, he got 20 capsules, and in half of them, he put the, this active ingredient, galantamine, and in half of them, he put something cornstarch or sugar or something. I can't remember which. But uh, he numbered them all and gave them to a friend. And, and then on particular days, he'd ask his friend for one of the pills, but telling his friend to keep the number so he'd know whether it's you know one of the glantamine pills or one of the placebo pills. And, and Ed said that after he went through his study, he said that he actually had more lucid dreams on the night that he took the placebo. And he said he couldn't believe it because on some of those nights, he had all the side effects uh, of uh, galantamine-induced lucid dreams. You know, they're, they're much longer, they're more stable, sometimes they're a little bit more fantastical, but sometimes you have bod- bodily feelings of kind of feeling very hot, and, and in the morning, you're kind of drugged out, like you've, you know, had... Um, 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 too much to drink. Too much to drink, exactly. And, and so, so what's interesting about this is that even though uh, there might be a biochemical doorway and even though someday we might have the perfect uh, thing that, that gets us all into lucid dreaming uh, just by popping a pill, that still there's this placebo aspect that, that, that can't be avoided. I mean, it's really fascinating because, I mean, the, the placebo trick is really interesting. It just shows you how powerful the mind is and how powerful our brains are that we're somehow able to produce this state by just taking like a, a sugar pill. Um, you, you know, it's interesting. Now, when my first book came out, uh, a, a fan of the book sent me his device uh, is kind of a dream mask that you'd put on your eyes before you go to sleep, and it would flash lights in your eyes when it realized you were dreaming. And, and so he, he sent me this thing he had created, and, and it had all these strange instructions. And the first night I set it up, and 
But I woke up in the middle of the night and I realized this the silly thing wasn't working. And so then the next night I set it up again and got it all configured and I thought, okay, this time it's really going to work. And that night I'm driving down 13th Street. All of a sudden I see there's a car in the ditch and its lights are flashing red, red, red. And then I think, oh, red lights, this is a dream. And I became lucidly aware and had a wonderful lucid dream. But But you know what? When I woke up and looked at this little machine device, I realized once again it hadn't worked and that my mind, just by expecting red lights flashing, had created uh, red lights flashing. So, so you're right, this, this placebo aspect, the, the incredible creativity of belief and expectation in our mind uh, often results in experience. Yeah, yeah, it's it's intriguing to me. I, I I find this whole aspect of, you know, just that we go to sleep and that, you know, dreams represent these different structures where we're either resolving com- like some conflict or just kind of dumping information out that we experience through the day, and then eventually getting to a point where we're able to control these these states to find new information to reach sort of these esoteric states where we're gaining I, I, I don't know just information that there's there's no way for us to know and perhaps even um, getting to a point where we are reaching states of encountering godlike like images or or archetypes exactly well when you get into lucid dreaming, you know, at first there's the kind of fun and play aspect that can be very distracting. But but after you've been a lucid dreamer for a few years, you realize you want to go further. And one of the first things that people do is they begin to access creativity. So, so like an artist might ask, show me a painting, the most incredible painting that I can create when I turn around. And when they turn around, here's an incredible painting. Or uh, I remember a, a novelist told me that Whenever he got stuck writing a novel, he would call out in a lucid dream, hey, novel figures, come here and tell me what's wrong with our novel. And all of a sudden, the novel characters would appear and they would tell him, you know, how to improve the novel or how to resolve it. And and so you can access creativity. But then you realize, well, wait a second, you can take this even further. You can begin to resolve emotional problems like phobias and anxiety and recurring nightmares then there's a lot of people who have had experiences with improving their health, apparently, in lucid dreams. You know, they become lucidly aware and they focus on healing something. And in the morning, they wake up and, you know, their back is better or their knees better or the the fever has gone away. And, and so it seems, you know, when you're at this really deep state, you can really influence things. And then beyond that, there's just learning about the nature of the unconscious mind. And, and finally, it's like you say, you can also do spiritual practices in a lucid dream. And, uh, and oftentimes you realize that they're very powerful. In fact, Buddhists would often say that an action performed at the level of a lucid dream is seven times more powerful than one performed at the waking state. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they say that because you're at this deep level of the unconscious mind already. You're, you know, when you're meditating during the day, you know, there's still maybe a part of you that's thinking, oh, yeah, I got to pick up my son at four o'clock. And, oh, yeah, tomorrow I'm getting a haircut. And, and you got all these little distractions occurring and, you know, your back hurts or whatever, or your knee, this, that, or the other. But when you're consciously aware in a lucid dream, 
oftentimes you have an enormous clarity of thought. I mean, it's, you're very focused. You, you're, the, the clarity is much more. And so then when you intend to do something like meditate in a lucid dream, the first time I meditated in a lucid dream, it, it just totally blew my mind. I, I couldn't believe that you could achieve such a profound state uh, within a minute or so. And that was spending one minute meditating within a lucid dream. Um, th- there's a friend of mine, Claire Johnson, who says that she's repeatedly meditated within a lucid dream. And she says now in her waking practice, what used to take her 20 minutes to get to a certain level, now she says because of these lucid dreams where she's meditated, she says it's like within five or six minutes she's at this incredible level that, that used to take her 20 minutes to get to. So, so you, you see that lucid dreaming is really a revolutionary psychological tool because it can be used for anything, for creativity, for healing, for spiritual growth, for inner transformation. But, of course, you have to know how to go about it and, and kind of what the rules are. Definitely. And, Robert, we're, I mean, we're approaching the end here. But, I mean, when I was, when I was doing the research for the show, I, was, I, I tried to find kind of the origins of, um, you know, dream analysis, like what, which cultures were kind of studying the dreams the most. And, and I, found, I found the Egyptians were uh, really big on dreaming. They thought that it was a, t- a, a technological force. And there are these these old hieroglyphs of this sort of winged bird with a human head coming to the person sleeping and kind of relaying this this information. So I mean, there are, you know it, it spans through human history that that dreams are highly valued, and uh, I mean, it, in the work that you're doing and and you know kind of making people aware of, you know, the power of their own minds and how to lucid dream is, is intriguing. Uh, the, the depth of it is what's fascinating, Nadine. When, when you become consciously aware within the unconscious, I mean, if you know how to go about it, you've opened up a whole new vast field. Um, oftentimes in those intro to psychology courses, you know, they'll show the conscious mind as kind of an iceberg and everything above the water, you know, is just consciousness. And then immediately below the water, well, that's the subconscious. And then the bulk of things is the unconscious. And when you get into lucid dreaming, you're consciously aware and able to explore the unconscious. And for the other experienced lucid dreamers out there that they know, like I do, that it's utterly profound and also totally underappreciated by psychology and science. But hopefully we're in the early innings and someday people will really see the revolutionary psychological tool that lucid dreaming is. I hope so. I truly hope so. I mean, um, so, okay, so to kind of finish up here, I mean, what, what would be one kind of tactic? I mean, I know you mentioned looking at your hands. Is that the primary way of kind of reminding yourself that you're in within a lucid dream? You know, um, uh, I think for beginners, that's a good way to start. Just every night before you go to sleep, look at your hands, tell yourself, tonight my dreams, when I see my hands, I'll realize I'm dreaming. And just focus on your hands, let your eyes cross or do whatever, but just keep focused on them. But you have to do it every night, just like uh, Ivan Pavlov rang the bell 
uh, every time he fed fed the dogs. But eventually, your hands are going to pop up in front of you. Also, you can do it during the day. Just look at your hands briefly. Tonight, my dreams, I see my hands and realize I'm dreaming. You know, just as a reminder. But what you do during the day, oftentimes through what they call continuity theory, continues in the dream state. And so if you do this enough, this kind of reality checking during the day, it'll appear in your lucid dreams. And also there's just the power of suggestion. Tonight in my dreams, I'll be more critically aware. And when I see something odd, I'll realize I'm dreaming. Just some suggestion like that also kind of primes the pump and and creates the proper atmosphere for lucid dreaming. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, we spend a third of our lives dreaming, so it's it's a big part of it. I mean, Robert, where can people, you know, get your book, find you? What do you I mean, what are you up to? Are you teaching any wor- workshops anytime soon? Yeah, yeah. I'll um, uh, Halloween weekend. Um, I'll be in Ireland uh, doing a dream yoga, lucid dreaming workshop. And uh, so you can find out about what I'm up to at lucidadvice.com. Or you can, of course, find my books um, at major bookstores, independent bookstores, or at Amazon.com. But the magazine that I co-edit is at luciddreammagazine.com. And so all those places are ways that you can find out what I'm up to and, and kind of see what's happening in the lucid dream space. Very cool. And I found I found your book to be a huge resource. I mean, it, was, it covers all the aspects of, of lucid dreaming. It was a good read. Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's really something that I'm totally passionate about. And also, I just want to remind people, you know, that by now, I've been lucid dreaming for 40 years. And and so my books are written with a lot of experience. It's not something that I picked up three years ago and I've written a book about. It's it's something I've spent decades working on. But, But I want to thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your presence here. This is The Human Experience. We will see you guys next week or within a lucid dream if you're having one. Thank you guys so much for listening.